Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. How much sleep did you get last night? Was it enough? If not, you're not alone. Today on Undisciplined, we'll be talking to a researcher who says Americans seem to be getting less sleep these days. After that, we'll be joined by a scientist who's trying to understand why so many patients withhold information from their doctors. The social psychologist and the demographic sociologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. Today on Undisciplined, we're being joined by two researchers from vastly different fields. Joining us on the line today from Tempe, Arizona, is Connor Sheehan, a researcher in the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University. Over the years, he studied health and disability in U.S. military veterans, the impact of parental health on children in Mexico, and the interrelationship of poverty and obesity. His most recent study in the journal Sleep dives into the world of sleep. Hi, Connor. Hi, thanks for having me. Also joining us in studio is Angie Fagerlin, a professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Her training is in experimental psychology, and her research focuses on testing methods that might improve communication between medical providers and patients. She's also a big fan of that other public radio science show that happens to be broadcast on Fridays, and we're hoping to become her second favorite science program today. Hi, Angie. Thanks for being here. Hi. Great to be here. First up today the demographic sociologist. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and friends beyond the binary, Uh, it's getting lulled in here, so let me take the things off your mind. I am getting so sleepy. That is the very intentionally dull voice of Drew Ackerman, the creator and host of a podcast called Sleep With Me, which is intended to help lull people to sleep each night. And really, that's a pretty big public service, because according to the research of my first guest, Americans are getting quite a bit less sleep than they were just a few years ago. He and his fellow researchers found that the number of people reporting short sleep, that's less than six hours a night, increased 4% just between 2012 and 2017. Connor Sheehan, you studied a wide range of subjects. How did you start getting interested in sleep? I'm interested in sleep because sleep is one of the key mechanisms that links the social environment to health outcomes. So it's pretty much how social inequality becomes reproduced in the body. It's tough to go to sleep when you're stressed, and the most disadvantaged segments of the population in general have higher levels of stress. So I want to get into the science thing, but you look at sleep as a social justice issue. That's right. Uh, Sleep is a key mechanism that leads to the severe inequality in health that we see in our society. People of color, poor Americans, they are much more likely to sleep worse than white or more advantaged Americans. Now, let's get into that. But first, let's let's go back and let's do the numbers here. 4%. That doesn't sound like a big change, but this happened, this increase, I guess, in the number of people who are having short sleep, this happened over just a short period of five years. And it came after a period of relative stability where people didn't report big changes in sleep behavior for quite a few years before 2012. As a social demographer, when you see a bump or a drop of that size in a really short time, you've got to figure something big is happening, right? There was a little change. People actually were sleeping more during the height of the recession simply because they had more time to sleep. Uh, they, They weren't working, so they could sleep more. But we saw this really big uptick beginning in 2012-2013, where, as you said, about 
4% of American adults became more likely to report short sleep. Now, 4% might not sound like a lot of people, but that corresponds to about 9 million Americans, which is about the population of New York City. So what do you think is happening? What, what happened during that period of time? Well, we're still kind of digging into that. We used a lot of statistical controls, and none of them could kind of explain the trend. But we know that Americans are stressed out recently. The American Psychological Association found that Americans are at the lowest point that they can remember in terms of stress. Americans are stressed about the future of the country. Almost everyone is stressed uh, about the political situation. And also, one important thing is that during this time period, we've seen an increased use of smartphones. And smartphones are increasingly entering the bedroom. So we bring our work with us. We bring our life. We bring our stress. We bring a bright light to bed with us every night. And this really shot up during that time period. So we're talking about a large growth of people bringing their smartphone to bed with them, and we think that that keeps them up at night. Now, one of the big findings, one you alluded to earlier, and one I think we should all be concerned about, is that this isn't happening equally across the board. There are groups of people who are getting even less sleep. Blacks and Hispanics in particular are increasingly more likely to report short sleep. And sleep is important for pretty much everything we do as humans. So if we're seeing widening inequality in sleep, we're likely to see widening inequality in health, in economic outcomes down the line. And do you have thoughts on why that is, why we're seeing these racial disparities in the amount of sleep people are getting? We know that Black and Hispanic Americans were especially hit hard by the recession and haven't recovered as quickly. During this time period, we also saw somewhat of an uptick in race-related discrimination. Blacks in particular were more likely to report being stressed due to the risk of police violence. And there was also an elevated rhetoric regarding deportation. And this is all really troubling because there are a lot of very strong correlations between the amount of sleep people get and their short and and long-term health outcomes. I think we all know how you feel when you don't get a good night of sleep. Right away, you are less able to focus. You're less creative at work. You're more likely to make mistakes, like there have been catastrophic mistakes that are partially due to sleep, like Chernobyl or the Exxon Valdez. But we can also make tons of tiny mistakes at work that can correspond over time and lead us to poor job performance. It's also important for health. If you don't sleep well, your immune system is hurt. But over the long term, it's very important for chronic diseases. Research has consistently linked short sleep to elevated risk of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and increasingly Alzheimer's. And also premature mortality. If you're not sleeping well, you're more likely to die younger. You could not have missed the fact that there's been a proliferation of smartphone use, those bright screens that we're all bringing with us to the bedrooms now. But even still, knowing that, were you surprised at the, at the big jump that you saw in the, in the data? Yeah, once I saw it, I, pretty much, I was a postdoc at the time, and I pretty much ran to my advisor's office because it really jumped off the page for us. I was very surprised that the extent to which Americans are becoming more likely to report short sleep. 
when you see things like that, do you, I mean, I assume you want to run the data four, five, ten times to make sure that you're not just seeing something strange, not just the, the result of a mistake, right? We were very worried, very cautious that we were making an error. and But also, the, the results make sense given all the stress that Americans are feeling, given the increasing rates of other negative health outcomes that could be linked to stress that would also give you poor sleep, like the increase in suicide rates or increase in overdose due to opiates. The American health is not in a great place, so it's not really surprising to us that we see an increase in short sleep. Do you think that you'll continue to see a rise in the number of Americans reporting short sleep in the years to come? The data set that you looked at went from 2012 to 2017, right? Right. One group that I'm especially concerned about is millennials. So millennials don't have a very strong economic means. They're in high degrees of student debt often, and that's linked to poor sleep. Millennials also are pretty heavily involved in the gig economy. So when you're working so much, sleep is one of the first things that kind of goes. Saying that, we saw kind of a a downtick among black Americans in 2017. So they, they did slightly better than the previous year in terms of short sleep. So that makes me somewhat optimistic. But overall, I'm not sure that it will begin to change anytime soon. That's Connor Sheehan, whose recent paper in the aptly named journal Sleep describes a recent increase in the number of people who get fewer than six hours of sleep each night. Connor, can you stick around a little bit to chat with our next guest at the end of the program? Yeah, absolutely. Next up, the social psychologist. That's the Grammy award-winning singer and songwriter Megan Trainer singing about all the lies people tell. And if there's anyone who can commiserate, it's doctors. Because according to a new study from my next guest, up to 80% of people say they've lied to their doctors about information that could be relevant to their health. Angie Fagerlin, let's start with what kind of lies people tell their doctors. What are the most common subjects people fib about? The most common um, thing that people fibbed about was whether or not they agreed with their clinician's recommendation. So the doctor tells them, hey, you know, let's start you on a new medication. You have high blood pressure. And the patient in their head is thinking, I'm not going to do this medication. I can't afford it. I can't add another drug. I don't think my blood pressure is that bad. But they don't have that conversation with the provider. They're withholding their actual opinion. The second most common was when they didn't understand what the provider was saying. And then the other kind of common ones, I know this is going to surprise you, but people aren't always honest about their healthy diet. They're not always honest about their exercising um, or the type of medication that they're on. If they're taking their medicines as prescribed, if they're taking their husband's medication that wasn't prescribed to them, if they're taking too much more than they were prescribed, those kind of prescription drug issues. And and these are really profound Lies. I guess we we can call them lies, right? Or is there a better, is there a nicer way to say it? You know, what we've been trying to say is they're withholding information because sometimes it's they don't think one of the more common reasons why people didn't um, tell their doctor everything is because they didn't think it mattered. So I don't know if they even know it's a lie. They just like, well, I just didn't tell them. You know, it wasn't I was trying to lie or I wasn't trying to mislead. I just withheld that information. So I try not to use the word lie in okay. this case. I like that. I like that a lot better. So the, but these are profoundly important pieces of information that people are withholding because 
they're the input that controls the output, which is what the doctor tells them to do next or tells them what, what to take next. Exactly. And so the doctor, so for example, in the medication example, if somebody was thinking, I'm not going to take this medication, I can't afford another medication. If they talked to their provider and said, hey, I'm really not sure I can afford another medication, the provider could say, well, you know, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. You know what? This other drug that you're on might not is a lot can be a lot less impactful on your health than the one that I'm prescribing now. So what if we wean you off that one, start you on this one, and you'll still only have four medications. It'll cost you the same amount. You'll only have to kind of manage four medications instead of five. We can do this. And so they a lot of times providers can address these really complex issues and are happy to address these issues if given the chance. What about when it comes to diet and exercise? What's going on there? Well, in some of the, the reasons when people said that they were mis- with withholding information, some of their reasons were they didn't want to get lectured. They didn't want to be judged. They don't want to hear it. And they don't, also don't want their provider to think they're stupid, right? That was literally one of the things that we asked about. And is there some sense that people, when they're withholding this information, they don't realize that it's not just about preventing them from being lectured. It's really about providing to their providers the data set that they're going to work from. You know, at some level, some of the people, it was a small amount of people, maybe around 20%, had said, you know, I don't think this information mattered in this healthcare visit. So I think in some level, they don't think it matters. They know that they need to eat better. The ones I'm more concerned about is when they disagree, but don't talk to their doctor about it, or if they're taking medications that could have a really significant impact on their health, or if they don't understand. For me, it's really hard. I can just imagine other people who don't have that degree of comfort with the healthcare system to be able to admit that they're not understanding what's going on. Are there groups of people that are more likely to withhold potentially important information than others? Yeah, we found three groups of people who were. One were women, um, people with chronic illnesses, and younger adults compared to older adults. So let's take those one by one. Women, why do you think that is? It could be, and what would relate to the the chronic illness um, patients is that they have more experience with going to the provider, so have they more opportunities to withhold this information. That makes sense. Okay, so now that's the women, the chronic illness. The other group was the young, younger adults. Interesting. So, right. And in that case, it wouldn't be as much about having more opportunities to interact with providers. As you get older, the health consequences are different, right? Do you think most doctors know? about this already? Do they already have a sense that this was happening? No one is surprised. And and there's, you know, the lore is, you know, um, double the number of drinks that they report drinking and have the number of days of exercise, right? So they know that, that this is going on. I think the question is, how do we change it? How do we make it so that patients feel comfortable admitting things that put them in not the most ideal light? So would it be wise for doctors to maybe be a little bit more stern about like the potential consequences of withholding information? How do you respond to when people are really stern to you? Does that make you trust them more? No, I hate it. Yeah. I mean, but there's nice ways to do it, right? I'm going to guess that there are some providers that don't always eat healthy and don't get 120 minutes of physical activity a week, right? And so you can admit that, like, okay. These are the hard questions, you know, and none of us eat as well as we should. And, you know, none of us exercise as well as we should. That's a little more disarming. Right. And it's like, okay, we're we're, we're friends. We're having this conversation. You know, I'll be honest. You be honest, you know, and it's okay because I don't expect you to be perfect because you're a human. I guess it would be easy to say, well, okay, if a patient isn't willing to be honest with their doctor, they get what they deserve. But 
it's also fair to wonder if there isn't a problem with the system itself, right? If the majority of patients are sometimes withholding information or maybe often withholding information from their doctors. I think some of it is a system level issue when you have 13 minutes. So you really want to get to other things. And so you say, well, this doesn't really matter. So I'm just going to give the answer because that's not how I want to use that precious amount of time that I have in this visit. But there is also some of it is this presentation issue that they want to be thought of well, right? You know, I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to be judged. I, you know, and so I think that's where it takes a provider to think through this and how to ask these questions so people are comfortable. And, know, you know, I'm not doing this to judge you. I just want to make sure I can take the best care of you as possible. But this is difficult. So I wouldn't say, well, patients should just stop doing this because, it, you know, there's some of it is that they don't understand the consequences of some of these bigger issues. And some of it is that the provider is not creating a context or an environment that makes it possible for people to helps to close some of these these facts. That's Angie Fagerlin, whose study revealing a pervasive pattern in which patients withhold information from their doctors was recently published by the Journal of the American Medical Association. Angie, can I introduce you to someone that I think you'll really enjoy talking to? I would love that. Angie, this is social demographer Connor Sheehan. And Connor, this is social psychologist Angie Fagerlin. Nice to meet you, Angie. Nice to meet you as well, Connor. Can I get things started here by recognizing that in both of the subjects that we've discussed today, there's a pretty big constant, which is that people know that they're supposed to be doing something or that it's healthy for them to do something, but they don't. And here, I'm going to freely admit that I'm part of the group that Connor studies. I don't get enough sleep. And I've also had instances in which I haven't been completely forthright with my doctor. Is this part of human nature to be so self-destructive? That's a hard question. And I wonder if people really understand how self-destructive it is. You know, I'm like you, Matthew. I don't get anywhere near enough sleep. And I know theoretically that it's bad, but I don't on a day-to-day basis see that it has an impact on me. So I know that there's these consequences that Connor just really laid out very well earlier, all the kind of chronic illness and our ability to perform at our jobs better. But it doesn't it doesn't hit home. And I wonder if we know it and we talk about it, if people really feel it. Right. And so same thing with with my study. Do people really understand the consequences of withholding information, especially when people say, well, I didn't think it mattered or I'm just going to be judged? that they don't understand what the potential consequences are for not admitting that you don't understand what your provider says or if you disagree with your provider. So maybe it's not that they're trying to be self-destructive. They just don't think that it will have these kind of significant consequences. I agree. And I I somewhat view the, the sleep as somewhat determined by structure. Some people are able to sleep more and others are less able to And I wonder, Andy, do you think there's any structure that kind of leads, like women, for instance, to being more likely to withhold information from their doctors? You know, that's a great question. And I'm I'm just not sure. And I one of the things as we're talking about this is we might be able to go back to our data and look to see if they're more if women were more likely to indicate that they were concerned about being judged or looking stupid or some of those kind of issues. We see a lot of that concerns that women have about being treated fairly and equally and being respected within different kinds of contexts. That could be an interesting line to look at, but I I don't know off the top of my head because I haven't looked at the data in that way, but that's a fabulous question. 
Do you think going to the doctor with others helps? So I have some research that I've shown that having highly educated kids helps parents live longer. One of the reasons why we think that is is because kids kind of steer their parents through the medical system and they either do so well or not. So you can help your parent like remember an outcome or you can say, no, mom, you really haven't exercised that that much. Do you think going to the doctor with someone might help? That's fascinating. I think, you know, on some level, when we develop um, different types of interventions to help people make decisions about really uh, serious diagnosis, for example, cancer, we often recommend that people bring another person there to help ask questions or to take notes or help to remember what happened during the conversation. And I think in some case, if the person who is there knows the patient well enough to be, be able to call them on their lack of transparency, we'll say, but they also have to be confident to do that and potentially embarrass their parent in, in front of, of the provider. I could also make the other argument that people, especially in front of your kid, that they are like, well, I, I can't admit that I don't understand this. I don't want my kid to think I don't get this too. Or I don't want to say this in front of my son that I'm taking his dad's painkillers. So you could actually make the argument that people would maybe disclose less embarrassing things. So kind of merging our studies, how honest do you think people are about admitting their sleep patterns? I could actually see it going both ways. One is people know what they're supposed to do and they want to present well, so they're going to be honest. And then some other people might say, well, you know, if I'm a real academic or if I'm a real business person, I should get less than seven hours of sleep because that's what we do to be good workers. What do you think about that? How close do you think this is to reality? That's kind of the million dollar question that we spent the most time, I think, thinking more, more time thinking about that than almost the rest of the paper combined. And when we compare people's responses of their estimated duration to so-called objectively measured sleep, it's not necessarily all that close. So like when I say I'm sleeping seven hours, in reality, I'm sleeping six hours. So generally, people are likely to overestimate how much they're actually sleeping, which makes our results probably conservative. But there's no reason to expect that those overestimates would have changed over time. Connor, do you think that we'll start getting even better data with this now that people are wearing, you know, sleep trackers? You said earlier they're taking their cell phones to bed, but some of those cell phones have on them tracking programs that better monitor the amount and quality of sleep that they're getting, right? That would be kind of ideal. But one of the strengths of our survey is we had a nationally representative random sample. And the people who are likely to track their sleep are big nerds like me who find it interesting and who are obsessed with data, not necessarily everyone at the population level, um, or a random sample that we can get valid estimates. But saying that, it's going to be easier and easier for those kind of studies to be implemented as more people have smartphones or wear watches that can track their sleep. Angie, I saw you were just pointing at your smartwatch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm one of those people too, um, those, those <laughs> nerds who are tracking every ounce of my life. One of the other things I wanted to ask you, Connor, and I really liked how you framed this as a social justice issue, and I was actually surprised a little bit by your findings, but then when you described it, it, it made complete sense. So what can we do about it? Yeah, so that is the big question. That's something that we're kind of thinking about. But it, it's somewhat important to acknowledge that this inequality in sleep is highly related to 
broader social inequality. So policies that minimize social inequality, broadly speaking, housing policies, food policies, these can minimize sleep inequality. Um, Also, just focus on sleep, as you said, bringing awareness to this issue, as you said for your study, bringing awareness to withholding information to doctors that might enable better sleep. Can I ask a maybe a team question here? Do doctors routinely ask about sleep? And how important is it for patients to be honest about how much sleep they're getting? Great question. That's one of the ones that I don't know how often that gets brought up. And given what Connor, you know, talked about in terms of the impact on chronic illness, it seems like it would be a really important question for providers to ask and a really important question for patients to respond to accurately. This is a really great time that that providers could educate people about, look, this can increase the likelihood of you becoming overweight or having obesity issues. This could increase the likelihood that you'll develop diabetes down the road. There's real health outcomes to it. It's not just that you're tired or you might be cranky or short-tempered. It can really fundamentally change your health. And I think that's a really important conversation to have. Would you agree, Connor? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, people might withhold their sleep. They might say, oh, eight hours, when in reality, it's not even close. I I could definitely see that based on what I've heard from you and what you presented in your study. But I'm a bad millennial. I haven't gone to the doctor in a while. I probably should. So I I don't remember if they've asked me. And I definitely don't think they did as a teen. Well, I can make you feel better, Connor. The um, Choosing Wisely guidelines do not actually suggest getting annual exams unless there's some kind of health problem. So I think it's okay, probably cool. okay. Thank you. That does make me feel <laughs> Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Angie Fagerlin, thank you so much for joining us on Indisciplined. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you both. And Connor Sheehan, thank you. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. You can get a recording of this show and all of our programs wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today from the KCPW studios at beautiful Library Square in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LeClan. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.